Welcome to Spotlight On. Today, the spotlight is on Nick Turner, co-founder of Demand, a new product from Area 120, Google's workshop for experimental projects. Demand offers never-before-seen data to the live music industry, enabling artists to better understand and reach their fans. Nick has been a technology innovator and entertainment marketer since 1994, when he produced the first-ever live internet video concert. His career ascent since then parallels the rise of the internet, and we get into all of the details. Nick and I recorded a brief epilogue on April 22nd. He updated me on what Google's been up to with demand and other entertainment-related products since COVID hit. There's a noticeable change in the audio quality in our subsequent conversation. I hope you can pardon that and focus on the substance. Thanks so much. Prior to being involved in technology and business, Nick was a successful touring and recording musician, a music manager, and a record company executive. Most interestingly, he manned the drum kit for multiple influential bands, including the Barracudas and the Lords of the New Church. Quick note, if the tone and substance of our conversation does not entirely match the times, it's because we recorded this on February 14, 2020, immediately after Demand's public unveiling, but immediately before COVID-19 really hit. And now, Nick Turner. So tell me, how do we refer to you? What's your title? My title currently is a founder in residence at Google's Area 120 uh, and co-founder of, of a product called Demand. But um, Google's Area 120 is sort of the incubation lab for Google. Uh, and I was brought in from the outside to look at the live events industry. Excellent. I'd like to talk about all of the interesting things that you guys are doing over there. But I want to provide a couple of decades of context on that. Okay. <laughs> so, um, decades of context. Okay. <laughs> well, given that you're only a couple of decades old, it should go by pretty fast. Pretty quick. Cool. Um, okay. So, where are you from? <laughs> you have a strange accent. Uh, yes, I have a strange, very strange accent. A, a mid-Atlantic rock and roll accent, I'm told. Um, yeah, so I was born in, in, in England, obviously. Grew up in London. Uh, I grew up in London during the punk days, um, the rise of the Sex Pistols Clash, and from America, obviously the Ramones, Patti Smith, Talking Heads, other bands like that. Um, and so very early on, um, I, I got terribly excited about the, the punk scene that was happening and realized that I could, I could, I could be a drummer. If they, could, if they can play these three chord songs, I can do that too. And uh, started playing drums and joined a band the next day, literally. Um, and so my background really after school was really in, in music and, and touring the world for five or six years with different bands, early days of MTV on MTV and doing interviews with Martha Quinn and all that kind of fun stuff. And ultimately I was in a band, in a band called Lords of the New Church, which um, Guns N' Roses opened for, REM opened for. And then we, we were managed by a guy called Miles Copeland, who was the manager of the police. So we did all these festivals in Europe with the police and U2 and all of those bands of the, of the era. In fact, I think U2's first ever gig in London was opening for my band, a band called the Barracudas. And then later, obviously, they did quite well for themselves. But um, uh, yeah, so uh, my early days was with being in bands and touring the world, which is when you're, when you're 21, 22 years old, is not a bad thing to do. So first band that I think most people would know that you played with, I, I would think would be the Raincoats. Is that right? <laughs> well, the Raincoats, I didn't even mention that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That was an interesting band. Um, most notable because it's, it's Kurt Cobain's favorite band. And um, when I joined the band, and I was 19, 18, 19, and it was sort of the height of punk, it was actually three girls and me, and then another guy joined, and then ultimately I left um, to do some other things, and the drummer from Joe Strummer's band, the 101ers joined. So it's, you know, it's one of those, and then later they made the first record and was seen as this sort of post-punk you know, art, art band, I guess, of some description. Yeah, I feel like if they're known for anything, at least stateside, it's, it was really for being 
one of the first, I mean, obviously this is after your time there, sort of all female art punk bands. And, um, but I think to me, what's most interesting about that band or a thing that's interesting about that band is, um, how sort of representative their sound is of what happened in the immediate aftermath of punk and the sex pistols, how when people think punk, they think a very crude, primitive version of rock and roll. And I think especially in England, it was much more diverse. It was much more diverse. I mean, obviously, you know, punk was obviously the, the Clash and the Pistols, but then, you know, Elvis Costello came up through punk and I guess the police in some, to some ways were new wave but came up. Um, but from America, I mean, something like the Raincoats was much more influenced by Paddy Smith and still obviously Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground and, and that kind of pre-punk stuff um, and Talking Heads and David Byrne and some of, some of that, that sort of new, new wavy kind of punk stuff. Yeah. How did you get into music? Were you, you know, were you, did you, I, you know, I have this image of that time period in England as sort of going from being black and white to one day it was in color and whether some people, was, you know, it was the Beatles where it turned into full color. Some people it was, you know, Bowie on television. What, you know, were, I, I, you know, I see a lot of the, a lot of the through thread in the music you were a part of seems to be American garage rock, Standells, Creation. Yeah, well, no, tell me a little bit about where you came from there. Well, where, where I where I first came from was obviously growing up, seeing the Beatles on TV and going, "Ooh, that that looks like a good job." Um, that was the you know seeing girls screaming with, screaming at them at Heathrow Airport. Um, that was like, "Well, I I want to do that. That looks that looks good." But then uh, after that, you know, it, it was Bowie, it was Roxy Music, it was T Rex, and this pictures of, of a band called Slade, who some of you might know. Um, and Slade, which was, I think, my second ever show. T-Rex was my first ever show. So I came from that sort of glam rock era. Um, and then when punk happened, it was just a, a, bolt of, a bolt of lightning, you know. And to your point, punk came and went pretty quickly in strictest terms of what punk rock was, or I guess, like, although I guess it's still here to some degree. But it, it allowed everyone to understand that they could also be in a band. And it wasn't so hard. You didn't have to be able to play like, Amazon Lake and Palmer or Yes or <laughs> any of those kind of prog rock bands, you could actually just start banging on something and with three chords you had a song. And so that was the awakening for me that punk brought. And so then I was at school and uh, there was a girl called Toya Wilcox who I met and I just started playing with her and some other, other people and uh, played at school, the first ever show we ever did and went from there. But once I started playing and got in front of a crowd, you know, it's kind of infectious. I mean, there's, there's, there's not that much that's, that's better than playing in front of a crowd. Yeah. They're hating you, that's something else. But that's, you know, <laughs> that's too. Well, and I think uh, for you guys with, with the Lords, you were sort of known for your stage presence and your presentation. How do those kinds of things come about? How deliberate is that? Or is it you just get four nut jobs on stage and they do what they do? Yeah, well, I mean, our singer had sort of the, it was just rampant in, uh, and sort of the rampant abandon of a, of, a, of, a, of a typical front man from that period, you know. And he would hang himself with his mic core from a beam and he'd, and he'd climb inside my bass drum and he'd stretch chewing gum from the mic stand to the drums and do a limbo dance and he'd dive in the crowd. I mean, all the stuff that you'd expect the live performance was something to behold. The, the problem with the Lords, it was a very inconsistent band because it was fueled by a bunch of interesting substances. So on the most important night in Los Angeles, you know, where all the press were, were there, you'd be terrible because you'd been up all night in Los Angeles doing what you do. And then the next night in Pomona, you'd be amazing. And there was no one there to see it except the crowd. So it was a, it was a difficult band. I'm sure if you speak to our, our managers, at the time, Miles Copeland, you just hold his head in his hand because it was destined to be a big band. And later bands like Guns N' Roses and others, you know, who had a, who had a similar sound and a similar ethos, although arguably a, 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 a singer with a great, great voice and, and, and very different sounding voice, sort of took a lot of the stuff that we'd sort of done and, and took it to the next level and I guess continued to do so. Yeah, it's really interesting, the, um, the space that, the Lords occupied. I don't know if it's easier to see, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, but 
sort of a bridge band between, you know, you could throw the doors in there even um, with Stiv's voice and and sort of his delivery. And, but the, the, the new wave, the pop, the punk undertone, your garage influence, it's a, it's it's a fascinating band. Yeah. We met with Ray Manzarek, funnily you shouldn't mention that. I just remembered this after 30 years. We met with Ray Manzarek and he wanted to produce our second record. And Miles, our manager, wouldn't let it, let it happen. But in retrospect, that was the right move. That would have been a great, great record. But it didn't happen. Yeah, at that time, those bands were, uh, they hadn't had their second renaissance yet, right? Or they, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. One thing I wanted to run past you was uh, over the last week or so, I've just been, I've been listening to a bunch of the music of the, the bands you were in. So my Spotify recommendations have been getting <laughs> infiltrated by you. But yeah. one of the funny things is... Uh, Summer Fun by the Barracudas is now in a playlist Spotify made for me. And I wanted to tell you the three or four artists that are on either side of that song in the playlist, just to give you some sense of how Spotify thinks of the Barracudas. Yes. The three artists immediately before it are Screaming Trees, the Beastie Boys, yeah. Jim Blossoms. Yeah. And then there's Summer Fun. Yeah. And the immediate three songs after it are uh, Girlfriend by Matthew Sweet. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good company. This is a call by the Foo Fighters. Ooh, okay. And Sound and Vision by Bowie. Uh, oh, well, that, 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 that's I, I'm, I'm pleased about that. I was expecting you to say, you know, the Standells and, and all those sort of 60s kind of garage bands and maybe a little bit of Beach Boys and Jan and Dean. So that's, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> Interestingly enough, you know, when I was working at Live Nation later and, and meeting with the Jonas Brothers, and because and, I was involved with them sort of in their early days, and they had actually looked at Summer Fun to cover on their first record and decided not to go with it. What a drag. Because <laughs> that would <laughs> Firstly, the royalties would have been rather good. And secondly, although I didn't write it, the, the other guys would have, would have benefited, but um, it would have kind of given a, been a nice resurrection for that song. So how do, um, in the pre-streaming era, how do you think uh, those young kids learned about that? I mean, these songs tend to, they take on a life of their own, but it's always a mystery to me as how, how something like that happens. Yeah, I mean, you want to, one would imagine that you know, their publishers were looking for feel-good summer songs, right? And, and probably Summer Fun, which has it's been on a lot of, lot of uh, compilations of 60s summer-type songs for the beach. Um, that probably showed up somewhere, I'd imagine, in the priest yeah. world. So when your time with the Lords came to an end, yeah. were you washing your hands of being on that side of the stage, or did you want to make another go of it? Can you talk a little bit about your transition from, from being a performer to being a business person? Um, yes, it was probably one of the hardest transitions of my life, because having been in a rock band for five or six years and toured the, touring the world, you are, um, you are trained to do absolutely zero. So I, I went to work for Miles Copeland and basically for, for almost nothing and said, look, I want to learn the, the business side of, of, of the industry. I bought my first laptop computer and sat there and pressed, pressed the on button, having no contra- training in computers at all, and, and went from there to try and learn, firstly, the business and, and, and learn the power of computing as well. So it was a very, very difficult transition. It really was, because when you're used to being in a band and told what time to eat and what time to get up and what time to play and what time you know, to do whatever, I had to sort of reinvent myself for the first time. And worked work with Miles for a few years and worked work with Squeeze and worked with um, Belinda Carlisle and on the management side and obviously a little bit with Sting as well, doing some CD-ROMs. Uh, and that kind of stuff in the CD-ROM era. And it was while I was doing the Sting CD-ROM, I actually met Paul Allen and Paul Allen's company and saw the internet for the first time around that time, which is probably 94. And that was the, the big awakening because as twee as this sounds, or at, at that time I was one of the early people going around saying, this is going to be big, the internet, this thing's going to be big. And no one knew what it was. And I was out there evangelizing the internet. And, you know, it was, it, the internet at that point was used for email and there, was, there were a few tech sites. I think UBL, the Ultimate Band List, had just launched. And I went out and uh, did one of the earliest broadcasts by a band on the internet. And I did uh, one of the earliest music websites called Rocktropolis and just jumped to in, into it with, with, with both feet and, and built websites for JVC, some of these earliest websites, and started a company. And uh, that got sold very quickly to another company called N2K who, had a, who was selling seed, physical CDs through the internet. 
and went, they went public and raised a ton of money. And at that point, I was now sort of in, in, in the internet and, and doing, I guess, some sort of pioneering work at that time, working with artists. It seems like a very long time ago. They then joined a company called Artist Direct, which was Mark Geiger's company. Uh, Mark is now the head of music at, uh, at William Morris and has, has had a storied career. But he'd started a new company called Artist Direct, whose goal was to work with the biggest artists in the industry and put them on the internet, do their e-commerce, do their, connect them with fans for the first time, create email lists and all of the stuff that's de rigueur now, but at the time was still very new. Um, and they had an agency and they, they had some other pieces to the pie and ultimately a label. And so that was um, fascinating getting to work with everyone, you know, from the Stones and Madonna and the Chili Peppers and Beck and the Beastie Boys and all of the, the, the bands of that time and, and trying to understand how the internet could be used in new and different ways. And we do live broadcasts and we would do chats, you know, text chats with bands and all of that kind of stuff. And to just dial back a little bit to the sort of early mid nineties when you, when you had that moment that led you to be an evangelist for the internet. Yeah. What was it you saw? What, what, what did it first strike you as? Was it a communications tool? Was it a commercial tool? Was it all the above? What was the thing that first you said, Oh, it's going to change this aspect of the world. Yeah. Well, I, I think I realized very, very quickly it was, it was going to replace radio. It was going to replace TV be replaced it was it's only begun another channel for video and, and audio it was obviously a, an incredible channel for information did you know that newspapers were going to go away the first time you saw it well it became apparent pretty quickly that this is how you were going to get your news and how you were going to get your information we didn't reckon for social media you know social media hadn't happened yet youtube hadn't happened yet and so that was still 10 years off um, but certainly you knew it was going to be the biggest information channel the world's ever seen. Bigger than TV and radio and newspapers combined. This is what I, what I used to say back then. And people just looked, looked at me like I had two heads. The rise of social media obviously took, took it to a whole new level uh, for good and for bad. Uh, uh, but that was still, still a ways off. It's amazing to think back to those early days and some of the first conversations with artists and even the first interactions with fans, I think, you know, as an industry, it had been so long since the industry had been so close to fans, Never mind putting artists that close to fans and to start to understand to, or to be reminded that um, that fan is short for fanatic and what that meant and what people wanted more of and how, how, how much they craved in terms of access and availability and what they would do if you gave them the ability to interact with each other communities that would sprout up. I think the thing I remember about sort of the early, the early web version of the internet was, you know, first of all, how little there was, you know, having the mosaic browser and going to a lot of university websites, or as you talked about things like ultimate band list or Iuma, those early, early music websites that really weren't much more than like directories to click on things and maybe see the, the lineup of a, of a band or things like that. But even in that crude form, I, I have a very visceral memory of like, I couldn't wait till the next time I could sit down at the computer and see what else I could go find. Like it, 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 it was very compelling very early on. And uh, that to me is what just, you know, as a focus group of one made me realize, wow, if this is doing this to me and the other people I happen to stumble across who know about this, what is going to happen when this thing catches on? Yeah. I, I remember things like looking at the coffee pot in Cambridge University where a, a college <laughs> professors didn't want to have to make coffee. So they put a camera on the coffee pot so they could see if the coffee pot was full. And so we would actually go and look at the coffee pot in Cambridge University to see if it was full or not. Now, this is ridiculous now, but at the time it was unbelievable that we could see this coffee pot in England. <laughs> silly things like that, you know. And then there was something called the cool side of the day, which as these yeah. new sites started sprouting up, you know, this, this one guy, this, this guy I met, I was actually nominated for cool side of the day with Rocktropolis, um, would choose four or five sites of the day. And then he, at the end of the day, they'd vote for one. And obviously these new websites were sprouting up every day. So it was fascinating to see what was being developed. And it was around the same time, obviously Yahoo started and, and some of these other sites that went on to bigger things. 
broadcast.com with Mark Cuban, which he sold to Yahoo, yeah, for a lot of, a lot yeah. of money. Um, a lot of those things were just in the very starting, starting points. Real audio was actually providing some audio content. Um, it was a very exciting time. And there were no rules. That was, the, that was the exciting time. There were no rules. It was the Wild West. No one knew what you could do or what you couldn't do. So that, that's what made it so exciting, I think. Yeah, I was, uh, I was recently, when I moved, I was digging through some old, you know, just archival papers of mine. I came across an interview from, it was either late 95 or sometime in 96, and it was with PC Magazine. And they were asking me about um, if, uh, about what would happen, uh, did consumers need secure servers in order to adopt um, purchasing on the internet? And the irony was that, you know, consumers were so far ahead of big business. This was when Visa was talking about developing their own secure protocol and MasterCard was, and nobody knew what to do. The banks were terrified that people were entering their credit cards onto the internet and people didn't really care. They weren't thinking about whether it was secure or not. <laughs> it was what I could buy books. I could buy CDs. I could, yeah. Uh, <laughs> That, that, that was the other thing. It just, just reminded me again, you know, I was at this company, N2K, and we were selling CDs on the internet. And Amazon had launched and were only selling books. And we could see how well they were doing with books until they did the day that they launched selling CDs. And we looked at it that first day and we realized we're out of business. The company was out of business because Amazon was, Amazon was so good. They had a bigger range. They had such good customer service. And uh, ultimately, that company, N2K, merged with CD Now, who was the other, other CD, re CD retailer. And I think ultimately, they sold to MG and PMG and then, and then went out of business. But uh, yeah, different time. Yeah. Before we jet forward, what was, what was Rocktropolis? Rocktropolis was a virtual rock and roll city in cyberspace. You know, it, it, had, it had streets uh, and, and buildings with, with, with different artists. So you had Sting's Castle. I think Sting had just released the Ten Summoners. Tale. So in Sting's Castle, you could go and find out all Sting's tour dates and see, I think, rudimentary video clips. In the Morrison Hotel, you could go and see Jim Morrison and the Doors, who I just I think had just released uh, a re-release of American Prayer. So it was that kind of um, that kind of uh, environment. And the thing was, you know, you were using using these modems, and it, it was very graphic rich. So you'd have to wait for the for the, the photo to, 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 uh, to load. It wasn't, wasn't the, uh, the most optimal thing to see on the internet, but once it did load, it was very pretty. And so it got, you know, it got a lot of attention, a lot of press. Um, and uh, I think Yahoo, Yahoo voted it one of the sites of the year or something like that. But it was, uh, it was, it was early days and uh, it didn't survive more than like three or four years before I think I'd moved on to something else. And so was the notion that, Rocktropolis was a place where that was the destination and you would, you would sort of build these real estate, real estate experiences and they were promotional vehicles for whatever the label or the artist had going on. And was the model that they would sort of, they would pay you, you would monetize your traffic by building these installations. I hesitate to say there was actually a model at that time. You know, I was doing it as a calling for fun. I was doing it because it was there. It was a terribly exciting time to actually build something and, and have people see it around the world. I, w I was also building websites for other companies. So it was a bit of a calling card to drive the sales of building other, other, people's, uh, other people's websites at the time. Also, ultimately, the model would have gone to, gone to advertising and you, know, you probably would have sold CDs. In fact, we were selling some CDs. Um, on the site, but it was, you know, still very early days. So there really wasn't that much money to, to be made out of them. Yeah. How did you um, wind up in the States? What brought you over to actually live here and to work? Oh, I, I was, I mean, I was, I would say I was, I was in bands touring. Um, but then in, in typical fashion, it was a woman that, that brought me over to the States. Uh, a woman I actually married and had had two children with. And, you know, once growing up in, in, in London, London's a fabulous town, but I think once you see the sunny skies of California, and you realize that every day you open the curtains, it's a beautiful day. You, you, you realize that there are other opportunities. And once I, once I, and I was commuting to, to, to do the Lords for a, for a while because the Lords were still based in, in London. But ultimately, the Lords was going downhill, you know, substance issues and the band weren't getting on. 
and didn't have a manager or a record label anymore. And it was, it was time to move on. And so I moved to California, um, worked with Miles, as I said, um, with, with some of these artists, uh, and then obviously jumped into the internet with both feet and had children and have never looked back. And I've been actually here for, for longer than I lived in England, a long time. Wow. So, uh, and were you always in California or did you do a stint in New York around the NCAA uh, stuff? I was always in California. I, I love New York to visit. Um, I'm not sure I could actually live there, especially now. I, I love California. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very lucky. I live in Malibu now, so I have a view of the ocean. I'm, I'm looking at the ocean right now, so I'm very lucky. And I also am in the water most days, so I'm either surfing or paddleboarding every, almost every day I can. So that is, is, is great for the brain and the mind and the body, and, and just to get out in the water every day is a wonderful thing. You've probably added 20 years to your life expectancy just by choosing to live in Malibu. I think so. I think so. I mean, I think uh, living in, in, in New York or a city where you're fighting the crowds every day would be a, a different experience. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you go to Artist Direct. You're working with a visionary like Geiger. Yeah. Um, what are you doing there for Artist Direct? So what we're doing is signing artists to the vision and, and then man, managing, managing the creative for them. So... Uh, we're building their websites, we're building their e-commerce stores, we're sending out emails. I had a team of 10 or 12 folks, um, many of whom have graduated on to, to other positions in the industry who were sort of their customer service, their, their artist relations people. Um, I, think, I think they were called channel managers at the time. And it was a, just a great education in how the industry works and how we, we could change the industry. What happened originally was that the labels saw us taking over their artists and wanted to sue us and then ultimately decided to, to invest in the company. And, and, and we went, you know, we went public and it was a, kind of a difficult time because it was just at the, at the time that the, the internet bubble was pricked. In, in, in fact, we could have been the, the needle that pricked the internet bubble, but it was a difficult time. But, you know, and, and then we stayed on there. We had a, a label for a while, you know, 9-11 happened. I mean, all these things happened, which were sort of, came against us. And then I stayed on actually at Artist Rec for a little, little period longer and sort of ran sort of this, this ad network that we created. And actually created a, a big ad network in music. Um, but ultimately it was, it, it, was, it was time to leave and I moved on from there and went to work uh, at Music Today, Corin Capshaw's company, uh, literally a week or two as it, before it got bought by Live Nation. But then I found myself at Live Nation uh, working with Music Today and then working with you at Ultrastar, Ultra still signing artists um, to do e-commerce and, and to do all of those kind of things, um, but working more with the Live Nation folks and working with artists like the Jonas Brothers and I think Jay-Z and some others um, for a period of time. And that was, of course, also just at the period that Live Nation and Ticketmaster merged. So again, a, a, an odd, odd timing where things are ch changing beneath you. And although I thought we had a very powerful uh, alliance in what we were doing with, with music, to, music Today and Ultrastar at Live Nation, ultimately I'm not sure they thought that. So, uh, so that sort of dis dissipated pretty quickly, unfortunately. So the first, say, 15 years or so of your life in sort of the internet business or the yeah. or entertainment internet business was really in, it, it, was, it, was, it sort of paralleled the interests in the things um, I was involved with in terms of connecting artists and fans, like broadly speaking, yes, there was e-commerce, yes, there was ticketing, there was content delivery, but the sort of theme was how do we bring artists and fans closer together? That's exactly right. Build the relationship. If we're lucky, monetize the relationship. Yeah. Do the earliest digital fan clubs, um, bundling tickets with, with records. I mean, all of those early things that we, both, both of you, you and I were, were doing, it was ultimately connecting artists, artists and fans in a way that hadn't been done before, removing the middleman wherever possible. Labels are obviously still important, but not in the same way as they once were. So now you see artists who obviously achieve incredible success using labels in slightly different ways by connecting with their fans much earlier in the process. Artists never had to be marketers. Now they have to be marketers and write emails and make videos, all the, thing, all the things that artists never did before that other people did for them, the artists are now doing themselves. So Do you think your music career would have been different had you emerged in this era? Would you have had an aptitude for it or was your head not, you know, how do you think you, if you could have, if you could have 
just time shifted into the different era, how would you have dealt with it? Well, I mean, knowing what I know now, I mean, knowing, I mean going back, knowing that, um, you obviously would have, would have, have cared about your fans in a much bigger way. You would develop better relationships with them. You'd had email lists and social, social media, none of which we ever had. Um, you would show up at a club, you played a thousand people, 2000 people, whatever it was. And there would never, ever be a connection. You know, you might get a phone number from a girl. That's, that's probably the extent of it. Um, so you, would, you could never identify them. Um, the ability to identify your fans now and, and reach out to them in um, proactive ways could never have dreamt of that. And, and yeah. that, the artists that do that well will have long, long careers, right? Forever, even if they're making bad records and lose their labels, they'll still have fans that they can connect with and who hopefully will show up to see them on a rainy Tuesday night in Chicago. Um, when you don't have that, once, once you don't have a label, or back in the past, when you don't have a label, you can't really tour very, very much because you don't have the support. You can't get, you only had press or radio. Once you don't have that, you don't have anything. So it's a different world. I think one of the one of the things that's very interesting about this space is that um, you know it's certainly all become so much more mainstreamed or just uh, common practice. You know, to your point, you have a relationship with your fan base. You know how to rally them. You know how to reach them potentially long before you're signed. In fact, that may be why you get signed now because someone's got an A and R tool that says, "Oh, this this artist has pockets of demand that they've aggregated on social media or what have you." But in the early days when we were all kind of chasing either the hit makers of the times, you know, there in the mid, late 90s, early 2000s, um, sort of the end of the CD era when there were still those kinds of superstars, you know, million week ones and that kind of thing. Yeah. Or we were all going after the classic rockers. What was super interesting was how a lot of them got this. They understood this. If anybody had had a career of 5, 10, 20, even 30 years at that point with some of the you know, some of the 60s bands, um, they weren't doing it the way we were doing it, but they did understand this notion of like, you've got to give, you can't just show up and leave. And, you know, I think artists traded on the mystique and the distance with the audience a little bit differently than they do now, but they all understood and had different comfort levels with, well, where do you, where do you let them come into your world? Some operated, you know, official, pen and paper fan clubs where you could mail something in and get something back. And I can remember even as a kid joining artist fan clubs and, you know, maybe sending in the check for five, $10, whatever it was and forgetting about it. And then all of a sudden, six, eight weeks later, a package in the mail would come from, in my mind, the music business, mm -hmm. you know, the rock God sent me mail. And I don't know how I thought it was happening. I don't know if I even thought about, you know, is there an infrastructure for this? Is it a guy in the office? All I knew was the Rolling Stones were sending me a package. <laughs> and the magic of that was super powerful as a young music fan. And what I hope hasn't been lost now that it's so easy to send an email and so easy to communicate over social media is that special feeling of like rock and roll is talking to me. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know I, I, it has been lost to some degree. Um, that's that said, it's still still exciting if you if you can if you can meet your rock star icon, if if you can be in the front row, if you can or you know in the first few rows. There's there's still that there's still the, some magic there, but it's not the not the same as getting a package in the mail and an unexpected pleasure from your favorite artist. That was the, that was a pretty exciting time. Yeah. I do have to say one thing. If, if, I, if I would feel like those of us who were there for those first 10 or 15 years of this emerging online, one thing that is a, a not often discussed part of the legacy of that time is truly how much closer fans can get to fans or our artists can get to fans and fans can get to artists. Before that, the idea that you could go to a meet and greet and meet Sting or the Chili Peppers or whomever the artist is that's doing these VIP packages and travel packages and fan club contests. Those yeah. things were so much more limited. Maybe a radio station thing. Maybe if you worked at the local tower records, like you still had to be somehow connected. 
yeah. um, or the sort of, I hate to use the term, but the democratizing of access to the artist is something I feel really good about having been a part of. As a music fan, I love that we've mainstreamed that. Yeah, and the, the, world, the world has changed as well. I mean, we, you know, with, with, with streaming taking over from CD sales and all of that and, uh, and people not being able to sell a million CDs on, on the first week, um, obviously the industry had to change. I mean, bands, you know, 20 years ago, there's no way they would ever do a sponsorship deal. There's no way they'd ever sell meet and greets with their fans for, for VIP access or whatever that stuff is. They'd know, there's no way they would sell platinum tickets. It would be a you know, $50 ticket. Um, so all of that has changed. I think ultimately for the good, but uh, I guess time will tell. I mean, obviously there's a, there's a lot more artists now as well than there ever were before. A lot more touring artists now as well, which I think is a good thing. You know, where it goes from now is anyone's guess. There's still good music being made. There's still new artists being developed, big artists. I mean, there, were, there was a Wyatt for a while that, you know, once the Stones and the Eagles and all these bands go away, who's going to replace them? Well, you're actually seeing that now. You know, you're seeing the Billie Eilish's and the others and the Lizzo's and the Harry Styles and some of these other artists coming up to replace some of those older artists, whether they'll have the same effect on music. Arguable, we won't get into that right now, but um, certainly people still want to go and see live music. They still want to go into arenas and stadiums and see Taylor Swift or Ed Sheeran or whoever it is. Um, and that's a, that's a good thing. That's a good thing generally. Yeah, one of the big eye-openers for me um, as sort of a counter to that argument that there's not a strong bench of arena acts. So I think it was about five or six years ago now when the Black Keys came back and launched an arena tour. And I remember thinking at the time, the Black Keys are going to play arenas? It was massive. And I think there's this weird balancing act. I've talked to several people about this recently. Some artists get rushed into arenas too quickly, and it does almost irreversible damage to their careers. Right. And some artists take that leap right before it seems like they're ready, but they get there in a, in a really powerful way that then establishes them as a career artist for a long time. So it's fascinating. And, you know, I think a big part of it is the artists knowing their audience, trusting themselves, but then it's also people like the Geigers of the world um, and some of the more visionary managers out there who can see where these things can go and understand how to develop and, uh, and so, manage that so, process. So not to pitch the product I just launched, but um, the demand product, which I, I just launched out of Google's Area 120, which is a free product for the music industry, does allow you to look and see and compare your, your artists to other artists, um, both in terms of, of search, in YouTube, pricing in other areas. And I think that the ability to now see that will, will number one, stop a, a lot of the mistakes that the industry's made in the past, but also allow, allow an artist, and I won't go into any examples, but now an artist to say, okay, yeah, we can play an arena in Phoenix and Portland and Dallas, but we're probably better to do, you know, two theater shows in, you know, Hartford and, and Miami as an example. So you actually can, by DMA, look at and look at these these this different data. Compare yourself to other artists and un, and get a better understanding of where you fit in the marketplace. So there's there's some there's new data that coming out all the time that will allow you to do that. Without the benefit of visuals, while we're sitting here talking, yeah. how are some of those things done? So, how does the product work? So well, I'll, I'll give you the backstory. Um, you know, I was invited to to, to join Area Google's Area 120 about two years ago. Um, they were looking at live events and ticketing and ask, asking, you know, what I thought they should do. And, and what I thought they should do actually was not try and do their own ticketing platform and compete with Live Nation Ticketmaster and do all that stuff. That's, that, that would be ridiculous. But to actually use the data they have, um, which, you know, obviously is pretty extensive. Obviously, 70% of ticket sales start at Google, right? Mm. Foo Fighters tickets, Foo Fighters tour, Foo Fighters the forum, whatever it's going to be. Plus, obviously, we have the second biggest search engine in the world called YouTube. So the combination of that data, I, I thought, would be incredibly useful as an information source for, for the industry, number one. Secondly, when you add in primary and secondary sales data, and we have the day-by-day -day secondary value of a ticket, uh, and some other third-party sources, and, and put it in a big cocktail shaker and shake it up, we thought that, that insights 
um, would come out of that that would develop new products. And we've actually launched three or four different products. Um, one we launched called Demand, which came out a couple of weeks ago at the Polestar conference, which is a free product for everyone. If you go to demand.area120.com, you can, you can get it there and, and see what it is. Just register us, fill out a form, and you'll be able to play with it. Um, but other products that have been created out of it are, are really sort of more for internal use at Google. Um, we understand now, by looking at the, the, the announcement of a tour, we can look market by market and say the three-day Google activity post the press release going out and compare that to similar artists of a similar genre and a similar size and similar era. So if you're, you know, Googling, we look at Harry Styles and you would obviously compare him to, you know, the Jonas Brothers, Justin Bieber, Justin Timberlake, Ariana Grande, those kind of artists, big pop artists who play arenas. And you can understand how his announcement um, fared in com comparison to those other artists, market by market. This, this tells you a couple of things prior to on sale and prior to pre-sales tells you, okay, these are the top markets. These, these are the underperforming markets, the, the, the markets that aren't so hot. So prior to pre-sales and on sales, you have the ability to change marketing, change ticket prices, and, and, and do some of those things that also would ultimately save you money and be more effective in the, in the long term. So if you're, if you're announcing one Madison Square Garden show um, and have another one on hold, but by looking at this data, you, you, you actually realize that compared to those artists that played multiple nights, you're actually looking pretty good. You can probably, you know, announce that second show or even the third show at on sale. This, say, this saves you marketing money and saves you other things. So it, it gives for, provides for more efficiency for, for, for the industry. And at the top end, that's great. You know, we all want the artists to make more money. And, but also at the bottom end. So the data is also good for, for small club owners small local promoters, for smaller artists to understand what's happening in the marketplace, which artists are doing well, which artists aren't doing so, so well that are similar to them. And I'm plotting their career, career path by following some of these other artists. It tells you where to tour. It tells you the kind of venues you should be in. It tells you the kind of pricing that's in the industry. So we're hoping that, you know, it's the great equalizer because everyone gets the same data. The promoters, the managers, the artists, the, the agents, the labels all get the same data. So hopefully it will uh, solve a bunch of arguments. We were, we were working with a, a mid-sized promoter, you know, who just made a deal with a big artist and put, you know, quite a lot of money. And they asked us to, to see the data. This is prior to when we launched. And the data clearly told us and told them that this artist was on a severe decline and hadn't had a hit for three or four years. And um, they realized they'd overpaid for that show. So hopefully it will start to... Um, stop some of those mistakes from, from, from happening and, and provide more transparency to the industry in general. All right. There's a few things you said there. I wanted to, I want to ask a couple of follow-ups oh, about. Okay. So you said everybody would have the access to the same information. Yes. Is there a lack of symmetry right now about which stakeholders have access to data and insights and who, who has the most rich access before demand and who's going to benefit the most from demand? Well, well, firstly, no one has access to Google and YouTube data in the way that we're providing it, right? In the, in the way that we've intuitively provided it within this product. So no one really understood. I mean, there's Google Trends. This is a version of Google Trends that, that is more proprietary and, and that's much more fo fo focused on tickets and entertainment and also allows you to compare artist by artist. Um, so that, the, the, that's the first thing. And obviously the YouTube data, we were actually showing, showing raw, raw data reviews. To be able to see that in, in this new way has never been seen before. Secondly, on the pricing side, although Ticketmaster has their data and William Morris has their data, the industry has never really been able to, to see primary and secondary ticketing side by side in this way either. And, you know, we haven't gone in very granularly into this. We're not showing P1s and P2s and scaling tickets. We're showing maximum and average. So it, it's a very general ticketing for dummies kind of view. But I, I think that's okay because... When I show this to managers, they've really never seen this view before. So, you know, a major manager the other day just kind of put his head in his hands and said, oh my God, we're giving away so much money to the secondary. So how does that affect better pricing of tickets, but more dynamic pricing of tickets? I mean, obviously they've, they've, they've taken steps by doing platinum tickets and VIP and other things, but we've run a bunch of models and 
if the artist promoters agents start to price tickets better, more dynamically, obviously it likely will disincentivize the secondary to some degree, to some degree. And does that actually make the average price of tickets go down for the consumer? The models say yes, in real life, we'll, we'll, we'll see that. But we think there'll, there'll be a fairer distribution of tickets for everyone across a major show. So we, we think that the artists will benefit ultimately, the industry will benefit, there'll be more shows, there'll be more artists playing. I'm, I'm hoping also, as I mentioned earlier, that it engenders new talent and allows new talent to flourish or new clubs to start or new local promoters to actually understand their markets better and develop new music scenes. Who knows? Who knows? But that, that's, that's the hope. And um, what do you think, if, you, if you've had a chance to think about this at all, what would be three months from now, six months from now, nine months from now, if you got a piece of feedback from a stakeholder in the industry, an agent or a manager or a promoter, where they said, my use case for demand was XYZ and it made such a big impact on my business or on my thought process. What's sort of your dream use case that you see from the industry? What would, you, what would make you feel really gratified to hear it had impact on? I mean, there's a couple of things. One, one you know, we're providing this, this, this product as a free product. The reason to do that was to get it, to people to use it and adopt it uh, for a period of time. We so have, the answer, I love it so much, I'll actually pay for it? <laughs> um, potentially down the road, there may be new tranches of data that we will roll out, uh, more granular data that perhaps we will have people pay for. Um, we haven't determined that yet. You know, part of the reason for doing this is, is we believe if, if demand could help, you know, raise the industry by a percentage point, a couple of percentage points, then does that benefit Google in the, in the long term? Yeah, it does, because um, people obviously will spend more money on advertising, and so Google will actually benefit there. I mean, Google's making, you know, 30-year bets, you know, so if we can lift an industry and Google can be part of that lift, that would be, uh, that would be a tremendous thing. Whether we charge for some pieces of data or not to be determined, it's not a huge business to do that, really, because the industry is kind of limited. So we'd much more prefer um, to have people spend more advertising money on Google and have Google be more top of mind amongst the industry. You know, there are other products out there. Spotify has a product. Apple has one. But we, we believe, we hope that we've sort of set a new standard in providing data for the industry that will, will benefit, benefit us long, long, long term. We have some other products also that we're, we're rolling out in the next few weeks, which are more to do with live event calendars, the number of, 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 of shows that are happening, both music and sports, which we'll be rolling out in the next, in the next few weeks, which are better, will be beneficial to the music industry, but also beneficial to other industries, the travel industry, transportation, hospitality, the movie industry perhaps as well. So this is just a demand, the first product was just a stepping stone to some of these other products. And those will be paid, paid for revenue driving products. And are uh, a little bit vague, and I understand that you probably need to be <laughs> Sorry about that. But are those sort of under the umbrella from the consumer point of view of discovery? Or are they promotional tools for industry? Um, more, to, more to do with the discovery and, and the organization of data and transparency of data that really Google is the best entity to do. So if, if you know which artists are coming to town or which, which sporting events have been, have been announced uh, and you know the earliest possible date, the announcement, and that's in a structured way, who knows, the hotel chains may change their, 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 their room prices. They may choose to advertise around on sale. It may help them to look at their um, supply chain. They may, they may look, look at a, a data and go, okay, this is the busy weekend this, come, this year um, where we have Paul McCartney coming to town, the Lakers, Hamilton's playing at the local theater. All of this stuff is happening. So this is our busy weekend. So we, can, we should dynamically raise prices, presumably, and probably get more bartenders and more maids and more supplies in versus this is, this is the week, weaker weekend. So you know what? Perhaps we should think about lowering our prices, do a special offer, a weekend offer, or whatever it is, but doing that in a very structured way. So um, right now it's sort of anecdotal and, oh, you know, but it's not done in a structured way. So part of what we're, we're trying to bring is the structure to the live events industry and all of the supporting industries that surround it. That's phenomenal. 
when you talked about some internal tools for Google, would that be things that would allow, say, a sales team to act on some of those insights so they could say, oh, you know, with this on sale, um, I go across the grid, there's softness in these markets, I'm going to reach out to the tour marketer or to the digital marketing team at Live Nation or what have you. I, I, w I would say you're exactly on the right track. Yeah. Yeah, that's where, great. Where, where, where there are hot markets, obviously there's more, de where there's more demand. Probably some of those advertisers should, should need, need to raise their bids, right? Where there's softer markets, obviously marketing needs to sh be shifted into those markets. So that's kind of what we're talking about. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, advertising as value add. It's, it's, um, it's amazing. Um, so uh, a couple of just quick things. I know uh, we're, we're clocking down here. There's a little bit of a gap of time between where you left the direct-to-consumer space and you started up with demand. Sure. What happened in those intervening years? We could talk spe as specific as you want, but I have more of a notional or philosophical question, which is what leads you from being so immersed in the sort of artist to fan direct to consumer business to now being so passionate about helping more of a B2B look. What's that transition? What's it, what was it impacted by what's going on in the world or was it just your career path or curious? It, it, was, it was somewhat of a, a career path, but it was, it was also a realization that if, if we could take these B2B steps, that also a lot of the data that we were correlating um, can also affect the consumer. So part of what we're looking at is, is how does the data that we've um, put, pulled together affect the consumer? So uh, again, you know, these other products are sort of baby steps in, in, into understanding how we might look at Google and, and, and provide some of this data back to the consumer in, in a way that's more effective for them uh, within Google. If 70% of searches start on Google, um, is there a way where we can use this data to keep people on Google for longer, as an example? You know, if we can say, here's the range of prices, and, and we have obviously machine learning capabilities to understand whether prices are trending, trend, trending up or trending down, is that something we can provide to the consumer in a, in a way that makes um, their buying experience better and easier and more cost-effective? Maybe. I mean, down the road, that's what we're looking at. Yeah, I think philosophically, you know, a, a big reason why um, when presented the opportunity, I threw my lot in with light is that I, tr I truly believe that the companies whose organizing principles are around making things easier, better, more engaging, more exciting, less friction for consumers, when you organize your business around that notion, um, especially if you have a B2B offering that is driving ease of use and ease of consumption for consumers. I think that's the, that's the sort of meta trend right now. And I think that's the place to be. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I mean, you know, at Google, it's always about, okay, well, how does this affect the consumer? You know, what can we get, what, what can we do to make the consumer's consumer's life better? So I'm hopeful that down the road, some of the data that we've put together and some of the insights that we have can, can affect the consumer in a direct way. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's also a bit of a green field because a lot of the incumbents in a lot of different spaces in and around multiple industries, not just entertainment, um, aren't well equipped to have their interests aligned with what's best for the customer because of legacy modes of doing business or contractual obligations, um, mental models or whatever. So um, I think it's a great opportunity. I'm glad you're fighting the good fight on behalf of fans and on behalf of the business. Um, it's great to see tools and functionality that can align the interests of both of those camps because that's how we'll go from people going to one or two concerts or one sporting event each season to um, viewing all these things as, as more regular parts of their lives and they'll go to more clubs and theaters and arenas and stadiums and they'll spend more money in those venues because we'll just make it easier um, and we'll make it better and it doesn't have to be an unpleasant experience. Uh, people come out in droves to go to live events, and it's super difficult. Um, as we start to make it easier as an industry, I think really great things are gonna happen for uh, everybody I, involved. I think so too. The, pa the, the power of live is still so strong, and uh, ho hopefully it remains that way. Well, um, I hope maybe uh, in a few months we could get back together and see sure. how these things are being embraced, but um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll speak again soon.
And by the way, we're, we're, we're big fans of what Light's doing as well, just so I want to say that. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, how are you? How's, how's everybody in your world? Everyone in my world is good. Everyone's healthy. Um, all the girls are good. Wife's good. Family. My parents are great. And just spoke to them this morning. Everyone's good. And I, I'm actually working harder than, than I've ever worked before. Um, because this other product that we launched, a bunch of folks are finding them. I can talk about it now because it's, it's available. A bunch of people are finding it very, very valuable in terms of it has recovery indicators and around events and it also has uh, you know again never before seen google data so it's kind of kind of cool what can you uh what can you talk about in terms of the product as a as a recovery indicator obviously i mean like like you have you have access to well we have access to all, all the secondary tickets right so we can see who's buying tickets right now which is nobody versus um obviously who starts starts to buy tickets regionally to show their the inclination to, to, to go to events again and start buying tickets. We also can see obviously the secondary prices. And then thirdly, probably which you guys don't have, is we have the proclivity to travel. So, you know, whereas obviously people travel across the country for the Rolling Stones or whoever, we can actually now see their searches um, for travel from other DMAs. So if, you know, people are only searching in Seattle right now, um, and you have a major event in Seattle, we can see the searches from San Francisco and, and LA and Chicago and other places. So that obviously is great for hotel chains, airlines, uh, rental car companies, any of those folks, because it gives you the opportunity to understand that people are thinking about traveling again. People are buying tickets in markets they're not in. Therefore, does that give you the visibility to think about marketing a hotel and opening up? soft opening the hotel again maybe you know so a lot of that kind of stuff and it's obviously going to open up regionally um as it is now it's not opening up uh and it may it obviously may reclose again as well so um yeah it's interesting the way it, it looks like it's gonna it's gonna expand and contract maybe a couple of times um yeah you said something so. that that's interesting though we we actually um we are still seeing demand it's been fascinating so as we started to roll out and adapt the, uh, the platform into a sort of postponement tool, we've added yeah. a bunch of different features and functions that go just from returns to what, how you would apply it in a postponement scenario. And um, as our festivals and venue partners are allowing people to return their tickets through the light platform, we're not seeing a massive drop off on the demand side. In fact, most of the return inventory is getting absorbed by waitlist demand. So the interesting thing we're seeing is that people are still willing to put their credit card down and plan for the future. It's, I think people are really appreciative when they have more than just the binary choice of um, refund my ticket or hold my ticket. I think if you give yeah. them some flexibility and some, and some feeling of agency about it, they're more yeah. likely to do the thing you need them to do, which is hold on to the ticket or um, roll it over to another event. It's been fascinating to see the, the implied sentiment behind that. I think that's what Ticketmaster and Live Nation are counting on, is that people will not want refunds. The question is, are, are you seeing people still, well, I mean, obviously you, you pre-registered these, these folks, right, with their credit cards. So obviously if tickets become available, they, they probably get snapped up automatically or I don't know if it's automatic or not, but are, are people buying tickets for this year or are they buying tickets for next year? No, they're buying yeah. tickets for this year. The festivals that have been uh, postponed, you know, we're working with Bottle Rock, Bonnaroo, Coachella, Broccoli City. Um, people are choosing to hold on or roll over their tickets um, to the rescheduled dates um, in greater numbers than they are asking for refunds. Yeah, I mean, I, that doesn't surprise me. Everyone, everyone's generally optimistic, right? They, they think that Coachella is going to happen in October. Well, I mean, I hope it does, obviously. Um, but you know, I think there's no guarantee for any shows that this, this, this year. But I, obviously, people, people are optimistic, and they should stay that way. I'm optimistic, yeah. too. But how's, your, uh, how's the evolution of your product offering <laughs> being used? Like, so it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an intention indicator 
that you can then package to the hospitality industry or similar marketers who are looking for signs of recovery? Yeah, it's, it's not just signs of recovery. It's a global database of concerts, of conferences, of sporting events, of theater, most of which obviously is not happening right now. Um, but it adds in never before seen Google data. So we can project audience size. I mean, for, for sports, as an example, if it's a baseball game and, it, and it's the, the two biggest teams going into the playoffs, you know there's going to be 40, 50,000 people there versus if it's the two worst teams at the end of the season, no chance of the playoffs, there's going to be five, 6,000 people there, right? So we, we can do all that projection for concerts to theater and other, other things and conferences as well. So you know, obviously we had South by Southwest and we had... Uh, a bunch of the Google conferences. So you can predict all of that. You can also see a bunch of demographic information, who these people are, um, the age groups, uh, the, the, the gender, the insights of, of who, what these audiences also also like, right? And then, we, then we've added in, you know, latitude and longitude and, and start time and end time or start time and run time of these events. And, you know, companies like Uber and Lyft will use that, or obviously the hotel industry, Airline industry will use all of that. And then, you know, we're seeing even, even folks in, in, in the retail space um, find this data very valuable to know in a structured way across 210 DMAs, all of the events that are happening in their neighborhoods, the busiest day of the year versus the not busiest day of the year. And what, what they would do differently in terms of pricing, in terms of supply chain. Um, if it's a hotel, do they need, you know, more supplies, more maids, more bartenders, all of that stuff. Whereas on a day that's not busy, what do they have to do to get people into, in, in terms of promotions or marketing to get people into hotels? So we're, we're doing a lot of that kind of stuff. And we were talking to a, a major soft drinks company who will remain nameless, who said that when the Wuhan province went down, they lost a lot of money, obviously. But when it came back, they lost even more money, which I, I thought was a fascinating anecdote because they weren't ready. They didn't have their supply chains in place. They weren't marketing. They just weren't ready for for the world to reopen. And so we've been using that anecdote with a bunch of these companies, which we hope that will make them smarter coming out of this crisis. So using this data, it will make them smarter and more efficient coming out of, the, out of this crisis so that they re can reclaim some of the losses much faster. So we're talking to hundreds of different brands right now uh, using this data. I, I think, I think it's, it's, gonna, it's gonna help different industries, different verticals come, come back. I'm hoping anyway. Wow, that's really that's fascinating. How how is it packaged and presented to them? Are, is it um, do you have it productized yet? Are they able to log in? It, and see it's, this it's stuff? actually available through the Google Cloud Marketplace in, in BigQuery, which is basically the data, the Google database. So they can go in there with their structured data, um, latitude and longitude of all their hotels or all their retail stores or whatever it is, and compare it against our data, and they'll gain you know, insights from that. It's a, it's a paid product. We're doing trials right now with, I think, over 30, 30 something different companies who are going in, in and looking at the data and comparing their data sets with our data sets, looking at new insights and understanding where, where all of this goes. So, yeah. That's amazing. Good for you guys. Um, yeah. So, will well, you be coming? I was going to say, we, you know, we had to pivot a little bit. Obviously, we launched the demand product for the live events industry back in February, while we were building this other product called the Live Events Tracker. The, the demand product, you know, was put in the hands of, of the agents and managers and labels and, and other folk, promoters of other folks, and, you know, was being used, which was wonderful to see that, and was being, seemed to be valuable um, venue to venue operators as well. Um, with the, uh, the arrival of, of COVID-19, obviously a bunch of that closed down, um, but what, what we're interesting now, interesting now, we're now starting to see people start to use it again. Uh, and one of the challenges for us on with the demand product is because, as you know, we were showing the announcement of tours. Question is, are the announcement tours and the activity on Google around the announcement of a tour is that going to be markedly different from the announcement of a tour from a year ago? Uh, my assumption is yes. <laughs> the search acti activity is going to be markedly different. In some categories, it might be less. In some categories, it might maybe more. My assumption is that there's going to be significant search activity around events moving forward because of the pent-up demand and everything else. Uh, and so our product will have to learn very quickly in order to be able to compare the different artists 
uh, and to understand the different search activity on Google today, or in June, July, when hopefully things start to get announced, versus, uh, you know, three months ago. Uh, so, it, yeah, in the past where it relied on sort of being an apples-to-apples -apples comparison between tour cycles, there's going to be a giant asterisk now in the data. That's exactly right. And I'm hoping we can, you know, our machine learning and our AI um, can, can, can learn very, very quickly. Uh, but it's going to take a little bit of time just to, to ramp back up and, and understand what new normal actually means. Well, if I had to place a bet, I would assume you guys will figure it out. <laughs> uh, I appreciate you saying that. So we have the two products. We have the demand industry product, which is the free product for, for, for the industry. And then we have the live events tracker, which is a paid product for, for brands and um, for retail, for transportation, hospitality which we're seeing a lot of traction around. So, um, and the combination of all that data together is, is pretty fascinating. We're having a bunch of major companies say that they've never seen this kind of data before. They've never been able to identify these, agent, these uh, audiences before in the same way. So, you know, we feel good about that. We're working incredibly hard. Obviously, when we realized that we could actually show some recovery indexes around tickets and ticketing and travel, that was helpful. So we're, we're, uh, we're providing that to a bunch of brands right now, obviously at no cost, just to make them smarter about the way things are coming back and doing trials with them. So we hope that uh, we're on a path to something, to something positive. Yeah, no, that sounds really great. And uh, I'm excited to help get the word out about that. The biggest of all thank yous to Nick Turner. And thank you for spending time with Spotlight On. Remember, we're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and most anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. Our theme music today is Summer Fun by the Barracudas, featuring Nick Turner on drums. Thank you to Ant Taylor and the entire Light family. If you're interested in what we're up to, visit light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot com. Keep your feedback coming. You can reach me at lawrence at light.com. And if you like what we do, please share us with a friend and or post a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform. It's much appreciated. Thank you so much. Be safe and stay in touch.